I invite you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. For our scripture reading, I will read the entire chapter. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. I remember as a young Christian in a Reformed church, I was somewhat afraid of the book of Acts. Uh, I was afraid to go there and read it and study it because of all the charismatic movement and how they had appropriated it. But we as Christians do not need to be afraid of this book. This is a glorious book with glorious truths. And when properly understood, they don't lead us into the charismatic confusion that we see all around us. Let us hear the glorious word of God, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent, rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. And pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my Spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, 
I saw the Lord ever before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me in the grave or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in the grave. And his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for all your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let us pray. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice at your mercy and grace and your glorious work of pouring out your Holy Spirit and working faith, working repentance, working obedience in your people. Heavenly Father, open up to us, we pray. Give to our hearts an understanding of your word. 
and of your glorious and magnificent work and our participation in it through Christ. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. On the day of Pentecost, a sound like a violent rushing wind filled the house where the 120 Christians in Jerusalem were praying. And flames of fire rested on the heads of every believer. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and went out and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the peoples from the entire world who had assembled in Jerusalem for the festival of harvest. harvest, And they miraculously proclaimed the gospel in the languages of every people that were present. When some people heard the believers speaking in all these different languages, they said, they're drunk. But the twelve apostles stood up. And Peter preached a sermon to the many thousands assembled in Jerusalem. He said, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. What was prophesied is being fulfilled. Peter points out that the miracles Jesus performed himself and through the apostles and through believers... And the prophecies that Jesus delivered himself and through the apostles and through the male and female believers all prove that Jesus accomplished salvation by his crucifixion. And that Jesus was resurrected. And that Jesus is now reigning over the earth. And that Jesus is the one who is pouring out the Holy Spirit upon all believers. Further, these events prove that Joel 2, 28 and following was being fulfilled. That the last days of the age of Adam had come. That the new covenant had begun. That the age of the Spirit had begun and, the, and that the new creation had begun. The age of Adam and the age of the Spirit continue concurrently from the day of Pentecost until Christ returns when he will put an end to the age of sin and death, the age of Adam, and will bring in perfect righteousness in the age of the Spirit, in the new heavens and the new earth. Many people today are, are seeking such miraculous gifts, thinking if they have these gifts, then they have what God was bringing, what Jesus was pouring out. But they fail to understand that these miraculous gifts were limited to the time of Jesus and the apostles. They were given for the one-time purpose of proving that Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation and has inaugurated the messianic age of God's Spirit dwelling within God's people. The book of Acts records the apostles' eyewitness testimony to Christ's resurrection for the one-time purpose of founding, establishing Christ's church, the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, in all the world, among all peoples. That was carried out in the book of Acts. And our witness now, since then, is to continue and expand Christ's established church among all peoples. God says in Romans 8, 9, 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You are not in the realm of the flesh anymore. Through Christ, you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him, does not belong to Christ. Are we seeking the Spirit as if we don't have it? Well, then we don't belong to him. He goes on. This, he, he says here, the Spirit, Paul is teaching that the Spirit now baptizes and dwells in every believer from the moment they believe. From the moment they trust in Christ. God also says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, are you in Christ? Has God given you faith in Him? Has His Spirit come to dwell in you? Then, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. The new creation has begun. God is making a new creation already in the lives of believers. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 is the key to properly understanding the event of Pentecost. In fact, it's the key to properly understanding the entire Bible. Peter focuses on four events in his sermon. Christ's crucifixion, Christ's resurrection, Christ's enthronement, and Christ's pouring out of the Spirit to indwell us so that Christ indwells us through the Spirit of God. And Peter shows that the Old Testament prophets predicted all of them and that Christ fulfilled all of them. Together, these four events redeemed all believers and replaced the dominion, the rule of the flesh with the dominion, the rule of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. We will examine these four events today. But first, let me ask you this question. Did you know that Christ's crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and his pouring out of the Spirit all occurred on Old Testament festival days? Old Testament feast days. What were the odds of that? Well, human, humanly speaking, pretty astronomical. But God brought it to pass. And why did he do that? God did it to show us that all the Old Testament feast days or festival days point to Jesus and that Jesus fulfilled and completed the meaning of all of them. Let us now focus on the first of these age-changing events. Christ crucified as our Passover lamb. In Acts 2, 22-23, Peter focuses on Christ's crucifixion and he says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. The Jews, miraculously, and I say it's a miracle from the standpoint of God, not that they did the miracle. Miraculously, Jesus was crucified by the Jews on Friday on the festival of Passover. Just as Jesus predicted in Matthew 26, 2, he predicted that they would crucify him on that day, even though that passage goes on in verses 3 through 5 to say that the chief priests and the elders, even as they were plotting to arrest and crucify Jesus, they said, but we must not arrest him or execute him on any of the festival days lest the people should riot. They determined they would not do it on any of the festival days, and yet they did. We need to realize 
that the Jews in counting days, uh, we, need, we need to realize um, that the Jews counted their days as beginning at twilight in the evening, about 6 p.m., and continuing until the evening of the next day. So, unlike us, we begin our days at midnight when we're asleep. For the Jews, the day begins every time twilight comes, every time evening comes. As the sun goes down, you can't see the sun, you can just see the light of the sun. About 6 p.m., although that varies every day, that's when their day began. And they actually had two portions to the day, obviously the night, which came first, and then the day. And so if they said it was the ninth hour of the night, that was 3 o'clock in the morning. If they said it was the ninth hour of the day, that was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they would begin their worship at the beginning of the day, which was as soon as twilight came. They would begin the day with worship. It's important to understand this, to understand the days of Christ's crucifixion. Passover began at 6 p.m. and they killed the Passover lamb and they ate it. And that very night, Jesus was arrested. And that very day, the next, during the daylight, he was crucified. For roughly 1,500 years, the Jews gathered in their homes every year on the 14th day of the first month, the month of Aviv, to observe the Passover festival and to remember that God had delivered them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. By God's command, the Jews in bondage in Egypt killed the Passover lamb at twilight. They put the Passover lamb's blood on the doorpost, took a hyssop and struck it against the doorposts and the lintel, splashed blood on the door. And they ate the lamb. God says in Exodus 12, 12, that that very night he would judge the gods of Egypt. Understand that the Pharaoh's firstborn son was considered to be a god. And strike down the firstborn of every Egyptian family. But what of the Israelites? Were they more righteous than the, than the Egyptians? No, they were not. They were sinners too. Why then weren't they struck down by God's angel? Because God declared, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. God did not punish the sin of those who showed their submission to God by putting the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. The Israelites were not delivered because they were physical descendants of Abraham. They were delivered because of the blood of the Lamb, which pictured the blood of Jesus Christ, symbolized and pointed forward to Christ. Verses 29 through 34 says that God struck down the firstborn at midnight, and the Egyptians feared for their lives so much that that very night... They demanded that the Israelites leave the nation, leave the country, lest they should all die. And God's people left Egypt that very day, the day of Passover. In John 1.29, John the Baptist said about Jesus, Look! Looking at Jesus, he said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Because Jesus accomplished salvation by his death, the very moment we believe in Jesus Christ, the very moment we repent of our sins and trust in him alone to save us, the Holy Spirit instantly brings us into union with Jesus Christ and delivers us from sin's bondage and punishment and gives us a new life in Jesus Christ. Saturday, the day after Christ's crucifixion, 
was the beginning of another festival, the seven-day-long festival of unleavened bread. Now, the Jews ate unleavened bread on the night of the Passover, but they also ate it seven more days after that with a Sabbath on the first day of it and a Sabbath rest on the last day of it. And the unleavened bread that the Jews ate for eight days from Passover to the end of the festival of unleavened bread was a yearly remembrance and a yearly celebration that God had delivered them from bondage in Egypt. And they had to hurry out of Egypt so fast, driven out by the Egyptians, that they did not have time to put leaven in their bread and wait for the bread to rise so that they could eat fluffy bread. Instead, they ate flat, tortilla-like bread. And every year for those eight days, they would only eat unleavened bread as they remembered and celebrated God's wondrous deliverance of them. And anyone who did not eat unleavened bread, anyone during that festival who who ate leavened bread would be removed from God's people. He would be cut off. He would be excommunicated because he was not demonstrating his faith in God. And by his death, Jesus fulfilled the festival of unleavened bread and has made it a symbol that Christ has delivered us from a tyrant far worse than Pharaoh. Jesus has delivered us from the tyranny of Satan and sin and death. And this means that those who are in Christ never, ever need to fear the Father's wrath or judgment. That angel of death shall not come to us in judgment for our sins. We are precious and dearly loved children. God's children. Jude 1 says that we are loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Next, the second age-changing event is Christ resurrected as the first fruits from the dead. Next, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, 8 through 11 to show that the Old Testament predicted the resurrection of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Peter says in verses 24 and 31, God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in the grave, and his flesh did not experience decay. Not only did the physical body of Jesus not decay, but God resurrected him and perfectly poured into him, filled Jesus' human body and soul with the presence of the Holy Spirit, giving him a perfect and glorified human body and soul with the result that his human body and soul no longer suffered pain, fatigue, or illness. No longer was it possible for him to sin, and no longer was it possible for him, his human body, to die. We need to understand also that the Jews included the current day when they counted days until something would take place. So if you were a Jew and it was Thursday and you're talking to your son and you said, son, I'll take you fishing on Saturday. You didn't say, son, I'll take you fishing in two days. You said, you'd say, son, I'll take you fishing in three days, counting the day you're on. And when the Apostle Paul said that Jesus Christ was raised 
on the third day, according to the Jewish way of counting, the first day was Friday, the day of crucifixion. The second day was Saturday, the day in the tomb. The third day was Sunday, the day of resurrection. He was raised on the third day. Crucified on Friday, raised on Sunday. He was raised on the next festival day, which was the festival of the first fruits. God's people came and presented the very first fruits of their harvest when the harvest just began to come in and they just started to reap it. They would go out and take the very first crops that were ripe and they would bring them and offer them to the Lord in gratitude that God in His mercy and grace had given them a harvest and they would spend many days reaping it but they brought the very first and they didn't eat it and say oh these peaches are so good these pears are so good they're so delicious let us have it no they brought the first they brought the very best of their crop and they brought it to the Lord and said Lord we know that all that has been given to us is from you here we give the first fruits to you And in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, God says to us, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What is the harvest? All those in Christ who have died and, and wait for the resurrection. But the first from the dead is Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, or we could say that just as all who are in Adam die, so also all who are in Christ will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. These verses tell us that Christ fulfills the firstfruits festival. It also reminds us that the firstfruits are inseparably linked to the rest of the harvest. We are in union with Christ and therefore we shall be raised too. It reminds us that Christ is inseparably united to all who have faith in Him with the result that His bodily resurrection guarantees our bodily resurrection when He returns. We too shall be raised up to have a human body and soul that will never again suffer grief, pain, fatigue, or illness. And will never again sin. And will never die. The First Fruits Festival has become a symbol of the gratitude that we owe to God for giving us such a wonderful Savior. We gather every Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior and to rejoice over what Christ has done for us. Hebrews 13, 17 exhorts us to continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. Not only when we corporately gather together, but every day through the week to give praise to our God and Savior. Next, the third age-changing event is Christ enthroned as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Peter quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, to show that the Old Testament predicted the enthronement of the God-man, Jesus, as the messianic king and ruler of the kings of the earth. Peter says in Acts 2, 34-36, For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord, that is God the Father, declared to my Lord, that is Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's it mean to sit at God's right hand? It means to sit on the throne with Him. Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus 
whom you crucified, both Lord, reigning sovereign Lord, and Messiah. Jesus, as a descendant of David, inherited David's throne. God declared to David in Psalm 89, verses 20 and 27, I have found David, my servant. I have anointed him with my sacred oil. Meaning, I have enthroned him. I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. In Daniel 7, 13 through 14, I won't read it now, but you can read it when you go home. It's a glorious passage. Predicts that one like a son of man will approach God in heaven and be given eternal dominion over all peoples forever. This was fulfilled at the ascension of Jesus when he ascended and came to the Father of Heaven and was given all dominion, all authority, and all rule over all the earth. Revelation 1.5 There, God calls Jesus Christ the ruler of the kings of the earth. And in Ephesians 1, 20-23, God tells us that Jesus reigns over all the world for the benefit of his people, the church. God says that he exercised this great power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, that is God the Father, subjected everything under his, that is Christ's, feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, for the benefit of his people. Christ's Reign guarantees the eternal salvation of his people. And because we are united to Christ, it also means that we share in his reign. In Revelation 3.21, Jesus promises, To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Now, what does that word conquered mean? Well, the Greek word niko, translated conquered, means to gain the victory. And how do we conquer? How do we do that? Well, think about this. Why do people want to wear Nike sneakers? Why do you want to get a Nike sneaker and wear it? What, what, what does the advertising say? The advertising says that those who wear Nike sneakers are the ones who will gain the victory. They will be the winner of the race. They will win the Olympic competition because these shoes are made for winners and these shoes help them to win. How do we gain the victory? What if we're martyred? What if we lose our lives? What, what, what if... What about all those Christians in the first century that were martyred and lost their lives? Did they, were they not conquerors? Were they, were they defeated by Satan? Not at all. Jesus teaches us and God teaches us in the book of Revelation, that those who are faithful unto death, whether or not they be martyred, whether or not they lose their lives for Christ, if they remain faithful to Jesus Christ until the point of death, if they do not turn away from faith in Christ, 
due to the hardness, the difficulty, the persecution. If they remain faithful to Christ until death, they have gained the victory over Satan. They have defeated Satan. They have conquered Satan and they shall reign with Jesus Christ. Revelation 20 tells us that those who have died in Christ, even those who were martyred, that they have conquered and that they are already living and reigning with Christ in heaven. Finally, the fourth age-changing event is Christ filled and filling as Lord of the harvest. Peter says in verses 32 and 33, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. The book of Acts, Peter later says that Jesus did not appear to everyone, but there was... He did not go around. Imagine that. Jesus could have gone around. He could have gone around and showed the Pharisees that he was alive, but he didn't. Who did he appear to? He appeared to believers and especially to the apostles. And the apostles were those who went out as eyewitnesses of the resurrected and proclaimed to the people, we have seen Jesus. We saw him with our eyes. He is risen and we preach to you the ascended Jesus Christ. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this, Peter says. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Why did Jesus wait 40 days after his resurrection before ascending to heaven? Well, Acts chapter 1 and verse 2 appears to indicate that the reason he stayed was so that he could spend 40 days explaining to his apostles the meaning of his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and pouring out the Holy Spirit. It says he talked about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about to come at Pentecost. And he spent 40 days explaining all of that to his apostles so that they could go and preach the gospel and explain the meaning of these events to the people. But even after Jesus ascended on the 40th day, why did he wait 10 more days in heaven before pouring out the Holy Spirit? Well, it appears that he waited for the festival of the harvest also known as the Festival of Weeks, which we know as Pentecost, which means 50. 50 days. God commanded his people in Deuteronomy 16, verses 10 and 11, you are to celebrate the Festival of Weeks, also known as the Festival of the Harvest, to the Lord your God with a free will offering that you give in proportion to how the Lord your God has blessed you. Rejoice before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to have his name dwell. God commanded his people that after 50 days, 50 days after the festival of first fruits, once they had gotten the whole harvest in, once they had harvested it all, brought it all in, They were all to assemble in Jerusalem. It didn't matter where they lived in Israel, if it was way up in the north or way down in the south. They were all to come to Jerusalem to the place where God's presence visibly dwelled in their midst. And they were to come with a free will offering from their harvest in thankfulness and gratitude to God for what he had given to them, each according to their ability to give based upon what they had. And on Pentecost, at the festival of harvest, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit to show that he fulfilled the festival of the harvest by bringing in the spiritual harvest. His resurrection produces spiritual resurrection for all who believe in him. Jesus is the first fruit. We are the harvest. 
on that day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the Jews gathered at a temple. They were told to go and gather at the place where God's visible presence was manifest. But God's visible presence, His glory cloud, had not manifested itself there at that stone temple for hundreds of years. They came to an empty temple. But on that day, Jesus poured out the glorious presence of God. But He did not pour it into that stone building. For God no longer desires stone temples. Rather, Jesus poured the Holy Spirit into every believer. We are now the temple of God, the place where God's glorious Spirit dwells. And Leviticus 23, 15 through 16, says that the way they determined the date for the festival of harvest after the festival of first fruits was that they were to count out seven weeks, 49 days, seven Sabbaths after the festival of the first fruits, and then hold the festival of the harvest on the 50th day. Leviticus 25 speaks of the year of Jubilee and says that seven times seven years after every 49 years, the 50th year, every 50th year was to be a year of Jubilee in which all the lands were returned to their owners, original owners, and every slave in Israel was freed. They went freed. They were no longer under any obligation. They were free men. Pentecost, seven times seven days, marks a mini-jubilee, which reminds us that Jesus frees us from the dominion of sin by pouring His Spirit into us at the very moment we surrender our hearts and lives to Him, that we believe in Him, that we trust in Him, that we take Him alone as our Lord and Savior. There are three phases to Christ's resurrection and filling of believers. First of all, when we believe... Jesus baptizes and fills us with the Holy Spirit. This is glorious. The Spirit of God dwells in us and guides us and convicts us and blesses us. But our relation with the Spirit is not yet fullness. While we are still in this body, our disobedience grieves the Spirit. We are exhorted in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21 to constantly seek the Spirit's sweet presence and work in our lives. To constantly be being filled with the Spirit. And how do we seek that which God alone can give to us? We seek it, Ephesians 5 says, through sharing the Word of God, through worship, through thankfulness to God in every situation that comes into our lives, and through submission to those that God has placed in authority over us out of reverence for Christ. This is how we can seek and beseech God to fill us with a greater measure of the Holy Spirit. The second phase, the first phase, is uh, our spiritual salvation and baptism with the Holy Spirit at that point where we believe, the second phase comes at our physical death. Our union with Christ guarantees that our souls immediately enter into the presence of God. And Hebrews 12, 23 says that we enter into the presence of the spirits of righteous people made perfect. And we become one of those righteous people, righteous souls that are made perfect in the presence of God. 
At that point, the Spirit so perfectly fills our soul that we will never again sin. And we are able to dwell in the presence of the sinless God. The third phase of our resurrection comes at Christ's return. Our physical bodies will be resurrected and made like Christ's glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15.49 says, And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, and when we die our bodies become what they were made from, dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will be like the glorious, resurrected, physical body of Jesus Christ. We will have a perfected human body and soul. And we shall dwell in unbroken and in intimate communion with our God forever. This is the glorious work that Jesus accomplished by his crucifixion and resurrection and enthronement and pouring out of the Spirit. And this is the glorious work that is guaranteed through to us by the union of Christ as we believe in Him, and as we look forward to that day of resurrection. And so Peter concludes his sermon with an invitation to all who hear, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we humbly confess ourselves to be those in need of your salvation. We cannot save ourselves. We are lost and under condemnation without you. But what glorious mercy and grace you have shown that you have sent your Son to be a Savior. And that all who repent of sin and trust in you will have the Lord Jesus Christ gloriously dwelling within through the Holy Spirit, which our enthroned Savior has poured out. Heavenly Father, please fill us every day more and more with your Spirit, we pray. Please grant that we may understand your Word and that by your grace we may walk in obedience to it and obedience to you. Grant, O Heavenly Father, that you would enable us to be witnesses, not eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, but experiential witnesses of the resurrected Christ dwelling within, that we may share your glorious gospel to those who know you not and see your spirit create glorious resurrection life in them, even as you have created it in us. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.